Good morning. As uh, Mark said, my name is Joel Cady, and I come from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. It's also where I live with my wife and three young kids. So uh, thank you for having me. This is my second time out here in the church, so I'm grateful to be back. I'm going to start by reading the scripture that's printed in the middle of the page that we're on, and then we'll dive right in. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is God's word. Maybe you noticed in the bulletin that we're calling this morning's sermon, Abraham's Faith. But we're going to start by talking about Fear. Why? Because that's where our story starts. It might seem strange to begin a story about faith, about believing God by starting with fear, but that's where we start. And so we have to figure out this morning, what in the world does faith have to do with fear? And we're going to realize that it has a lot to do with fear. You know, one commentator talking about this brief story that we read, just six verses, said that this story is the most influential story on the New Testament. That means that this story is the most influential story on Christianity. The New Testament also says that Abraham's experience in this brief story is the experience of all Christians, everybody who has faith. And so if we want to be people who have the faith that God wants us to have, if we want to live the Christian life, we have to deal with the problem of fear. Because that's where this story starts. If it's the quintessential story of faith, it's also the quintessential story of fear. If it illustrates what coming to faith looks like for all believers, it also illustrates what all of our fears look like. And yet, here's the hope that this story holds out for us. Abraham's fears go away. His anxieties melt away, even though none of his circumstances change. Imagine that. To live without anxiety, even in the face of the very things that were just moments before causing you to have anxiety. And yet, that's the promise of this passage. How is that even possible? We're going to look at the passage from three different angles. First, we're going to look at what is the problem of fear. Second, we'll look at how we all try to deal with our fears. And then third, we'll look at God's solution to fear. So first, what's the problem of fear? Why is fear such a prominent issue in this story? Well, we've got to start by looking at what Abraham is so afraid of. You notice that God shows up on the scene and he just says, Abraham, do not fear. Right in verse 1. So we know that Abraham's already worrying, even though as readers we're not let in on the conversation. And notice what Abraham immediately brings up, without hesitation. He doesn't say, God, what do you mean, don't fear? Abraham knows immediately what God is talking about. What does he bring up? His son. Specifically, it's a son that Abraham doesn't yet have, but God has promised him. Here's what's going on in Abraham's life. 
Abraham has banked his entire life on this one hope that God would give him a son, a son of his very own. He's based his whole life on this belief in a miracle. And it's not just a pipe dream of his. This is a promise that God has given him. God told Abraham and his wife Sarah that they would have a son of their own and that through this son and many descendants after the son, God would build a family and it would be Abraham's family that would bring God's message of salvation to the whole world. It's a pretty big promise. And yet, at every single turn, Abraham's faith in this great promise is called into question. His beliefs are threatened. It seems like it's not going to work after all. So if Abraham's life is a life of faith, we could also say his whole life is a life of fear. Because his faith is always under assault. So we need to ask the question again, what is the relationship of faith and fear? Why does this story of faith involve fear? Abraham shows us. Look with me at verse 2. We'll get into Abraham's mind a little bit. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. We'll paraphrase what he's saying. He's saying, God, my life is going to end badly. I have no son of my own. How in the world are you going to get me out of this dead end? I've banked everything on your promise of a son, and he's not here. What's going on is Abraham has begun to believe a story of his future that's going to end badly for him. And according to this story, that's essentially what all fear is. Fear basically comes when your picture of your life, your picture of your future, is going to end badly for you or for somebody that you love. A future where you're not saved from your problems, where your problems get the final word. Think of it this way. Fear comes when your faith in your future is under threat. You can think of fear, big and small, along these lines. So take, for example, you need to go to the doctor because you have some worrisome symptoms. You need to get some tests done. But the results of those tests, let's say, take a week to come. That whole week, what are you doing? You're brooding. You're nervous. You're not sure what the results are going to be. Why? Because your future is in question. You're not sure what's going to come. But let's say you go to the doctor, the results are in, he steps in, he's got a smile on his face, he says, look, there's no need to be concerned, it's not what we feared. It's just this, some, some benign issue. What happens? All of a sudden, your fears start to melt away. All of a sudden, you have a new lease on life. Uh, you know, you're overly optimistic the rest of that day. You're all of a sudden happy. Why? Because your faith in your future was restored. Okay. Fear came when your future was uncertain. You thought something is going to end badly for you. Things are not going to turn out well. But as soon as you get that clean bill of health, ah, no fears anymore. They just go away. Maybe you've noticed our whole country is getting more anxious these days. And actually it has been for a long time. It wasn't just this last election cycle. An economist recently found that over the past eight years in this country, Google search rates for anxiety, Google search rates for anxiety have more than doubled. And they're higher this year, he was writing in 2016, they are higher this year than they have been in any year since Google searches were first tracked in 2004. And here's what he found. Google searches for anxiety tend to be higher in places with lower levels of education, lower median incomes, 
and a larger part of the population living in rural areas. And he also found that people who were hardest hit by the economic recession uh, had the highest levels of Google searches for anxiety, for panic attacks. And why is that? If you're economically in hard times, you're not sure if your job's going to last. You're not sure how you're going to provide for your family. Then your faith is in question. Right? And so anxiety levels have been spiking, not only across the country, but especially in those areas where the future is just in question. You know, our culture itself and the changes that have been happening for the last several decades are also making us anxious. There was a researcher at San Diego State that found that as culture has shifted away from intrinsic values like loving relationships, close, lasting relationships, you know, community bonds, uh, a real lasting love for your work, as we've moved away from those values as a culture and toward more extrinsic values like status, wealth, prestige, building your resume, building your bank account, we've become so much more anxious. And here's what this researcher found. She said, recent generations have been told over and over again, you can be anything you want to be. You can have the big job title. You can have the big bank account. And in the case of women, you can have this perfect body. That puts tremendous pressure on people's shoulders. And the promises that our culture tells us, she says, are also not really true. These are things that aren't always under your control. But that disconnect between the cultural expectations and reality creates tons of anxiety about how hard you need to work to achieve them. And get this, a deep fear of failure. I would also add that because of our prosperity, relatively speaking in this country, we've become more anxious. Ironically, while so much of the world is anxious to get to a level of prosperity and security that much of this country has achieved, because we've achieved relative prosperity, we're more anxious. Why? Because we're never sure if our future is going to turn out as good as it could have turned out. So we're always asking ourselves questions like, how do I know I'm going to choose the right mate? How do I know I'll marry the right person? How do I know I'll choose the right school? What if I don't choose the right degree program? What if my career path gets off track? What if I don't stand out at work compared with my colleagues? Any kind of fear, big or small, comes, you could say, in the face of a crisis of faith when we're not sure how our future is going to turn out for us. We have, to, we have to talk about the subject. Fear, of course, comes in the face of death. Because humanly speaking, death is the final word for everybody's future. It's everybody's future. So if you notice in verse 2, when Abraham says, I continue childless, this translation doesn't bring it out, but another way to translate what he says is, I shall die childless. It was kind of a Hebrew expression. I'm going to die childless. In other words, for Abraham, if he died, all of his hopes were dashed. All the risks that he had taken based on his faith would have come to nothing. Humanly speaking, death is everybody's final word. So Abraham was thinking of his own death. But there may be an even worse fear than the fear of death itself, and it's this. What if somebody fears that their life just isn't really worth living anymore? That they're not really valuable people? That there's just no future left for them? There's nothing to go on for? That might be the most depressing and the most crippling kind of fear there is. In any case, whether it's the worst kind of fears or whether it's the most trifling anxieties that we have, Fear comes when your future is under threat. You could say when your faith is threatened. Okay. So ask yourself, 
let's pause here. Ask yourself, what if you thought about every one of your anxieties, all of your worries, as faith issues? In other words, when you're worrying, what is the picture of your future that's being threatened by what's going on in your life? What is the thing that you're hoping in? What is it about your future that is under threat by your circumstances? Fear is a faith issue. And so how do we typically handle our fears? The great thing about Abraham's story here is that he's a human being, like all of us, and he does what all of us do in response to fear. But he's also a believer. He's a believer in God, and so he does two more things, two supernatural things, you could say, in response to fear. And it's those two things that are going to lead us in a more hopeful direction. But first, let's look at the things that Abraham does in response to his fears that we all do. Look again at verses 2 and 3. I'll read it again. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now what's going on there? Notice that Abraham says virtually the same exact thing twice in a row. It's not like God said in response to the first time Abraham complained, Pardon me, Abraham, I didn't catch you. Can you repeat yourself? No, without any prompting, Abraham just replays his fear. And isn't that what we all do when we're afraid? We just replay our fears over and over and over. They just begin to take over our minds. What do we do? We do what Abraham does. We, we think out all the scary implications of if our fears come true. I'm going to die childless. Somebody else is going to be my heir, not my own son. He's re, his, his fears are stuck on repeat. Right? And they just begin to take over his mind. He replays his fear. Second, the second thing he does that we all do is he tries to fix his problem. He tries to fix the problem that's causing his fear in the first place. Notice in verses 2 and 3, he says, uh, this person Eliezer of Damascus will be his heir. Now what's going on there? He doesn't have a son of his own. So what he's done is he's appointed somebody in his household. Abraham was, uh, he had many people in his household who weren't his own family. He had lots of assets and livestock, so he had slaves and servants and laborers. So what he did was, he thought, well, God's not going to give me a son, I guess. So I'm just going to appoint somebody else to be my heir in his place. He, he was thinking of a plan B. Since God wasn't coming through for him, he better uh, work things out on his own. <clears throat> That's what we all do, right? As soon as fear hits, as soon as anxiety hits, we do whatever we can to try to fix the problem. But you know, Abraham doesn't just stop in the face of fear where we tend to stop. Because he's a believer, he shows us two more things that if you're a believer, you can do too in response to fear. Okay? He's not just replaying his fears in his mind. He doesn't just stop by trying to fix the problem. But notice first, the first supernatural thing you could say that he does is he prays his fears. He prays his worries. When he's uh, complaining about his condition, when he says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Notice what he's doing. He's talking to God. And notice too, he's not just sugarcoating his problems. He's not putting on this false reverence toward God. He's complaining to God the same way that he probably complained to Sarah, his wife. The same way that he would complain to himself in his own mind. Right? He prays his fears. He, he literally worries in the presence of God. Have you ever done that? 
Isn't that exactly the opposite of what we tend to do when we're worried, when we're really stuck in our fears? What do we tend to do? Uh, I can't pray right now. I'm just way too exhausted. I just don't have the mental energy. I just, I just don't have the time. I would be too distracted. Yeah, I'll get to praying and all that stuff once this problem gets cleared up. But no, right in the thick of his, of his worries, right in the middle of it, right in the darkest moment, Abraham is praying. He prays his worries, not after they get fixed, but right when they're the worst. So I wonder, have you ever done that? Is that what you tend to do? Pray your worries to God. Isn't it true that, let's say you have a, a, an anxiety that's just stuck in your mind, and it's growing and growing and growing, but as soon as you tell that to a friend, the worry goes from being this big to being this big. Isn't it so often true that when we just simply tell our worries to a friend, the worries shrink? And if that's true, when we speak about our fears to a friend, how much more true should it be when we speak our worries to God, that they should seem small by comparison? Okay, Abraham prays his fears, but second... The second supernatural thing that Abraham does with his worries is that he he believes God. He believes God, verse 6. And he believed the Lord. And this is, in a sense, the climax of the story because against all odds, even though none of his circumstances changed, Abraham believes God anyway. See, what is fear? Fear is saying, I'm looking out in the world, I'm looking at what's going wrong, I'm looking at what I can control, and things are not looking good. There are things that I can't control. Things are spiraling out. But faith is looking at the same exact circumstances, but from God's perspective. Not from your perspective, but from God's perspective. Faith says, I'm not going to judge my problems based on what I can see, based on what I can experience or control. I'm going to judge reality based on God's perspective. What he says. What I know that he can do. Abraham's faith believes in miracles, literally. He and his wife Sarah are far beyond childbearing years. They can't have a son of their own unless God intervenes. It's only by a miracle that this promise to Abraham comes true. Abraham prays his fears and he believes God. But that doesn't quite tell us how he goes from fear to faith. Because you might be thinking, wait a minute, I know Abraham's story. Just before this, and I know that just after the story, he's going to fall into fear again. He's going to fall into doubt again. He's going to come up with more goofy plans to try to fix the problems that he thinks God is not fixing. So what is it that leads Abraham from fearing, from anxiety, from worry, to praying his fears, to to believing in God instead of believing in his fears? Leads us to the third thing we'll look at. What is God's solution to fear? If that's what Abraham does, what does God do? Notice first, God speaks words against Abraham's fear. God shows up on the scene and he just says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then later on he says, No, Abraham, Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God's word goes right into the heart of Abraham's fears. And like Abraham, you also need exposure to God's word. You might think, oh, so when I'm worried, then that means I just need to read the Bible a lot? Maybe. But notice, God doesn't just speak platitudes to Abraham. God's word goes right into the heart of his fear itself. And so, when you need to hear God's word in response to your fears, it needs to be a very piercing, specific, targeted word. That means that you need to know where in the scripture to go 
to address your specific fear. So for instance, let's say you have a, just a crippling fear of people's opinion of you. You're just always looking out, posturing yourself, worried about what people think of you. Well, think of this. God told Israel centuries ago something that he tells us today. He says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now that sounds really poetic, uh, but what is it really saying? Israel, my people, why would you be afraid of people who I create? I put breath in their nostrils. I create them. If I'm on your side, what in the world would you be afraid of people for? It targets their fear of people, of, of other people's opinion. Or maybe you fear loneliness. Think of God's word also to his people when he says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, God's word targets your fears in particular ways, your specific fears. And you know, God often uses other Christians to speak his word to your fears, people who know your fears well. I want you to notice, though, that when God's word comes to Abraham, God doesn't just give him a bunch of logical arguments. He doesn't try to just snap Abraham out of his fears. He doesn't try to uh, give him a bunch of persuasions. He basically says, Abraham, look, you know that I'm God. <clears throat> Believe that I can come through for you. Okay? Don't fear because I'm going to give you the son that you hope for. In other words, Abraham, believe me because of who I am. Okay? So God's word comes, but in order for Abraham to believe God, he has to know who God is. And so that's what God does next. God shows Abraham his glory. Remember, he takes him outside, and he says, verse 5, Look toward heaven, Abraham. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then God says to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. Now what's going on there? Here's, here's the logic of this sign. God is showing Abraham how great, how powerful, how glorious he is. How's that? If God can create innumerable stars, which, by the way, would have looked a lot more impressive back then without light pollution, uh, air pollution, if God can create innumerable stars, keep them spinning in the sky, can't he create a single sun for Abraham? If God can do all of this, what is the creation of a sun? What is a little miracle over here on earth? In other words, God is, God is far more glorious, far more powerful than Abraham needed him to be. And we see that too. Abraham is over here quivering, brooding over, oh, is God going to give me a son? Is he not going to give me a son? And notice what God promises Abraham in response to that fear. He says, your offspring are not going to number just one. You're going to have more offspring than there are stars in the sky. God is so much more generous than our fears. See, we're worried about these little trifling things, some of which are very important. But then God comes along and says, you're worried about this? Well, I'm going to give you this? So much more than you fear losing? See, God is so much more powerful, glorious, so much more generous than we believe him to be. So God shows Abraham his glory so that Abraham knows who this God is that he's supposed to believe in. But the third and final thing God gives Abraham is righteousness. <clears throat> Look at verse 6 again. It says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now let me paraphrase what's going on. When Abraham believed God, God looked down on Abraham and said, Abraham, I now consider you righteous. Now let's unpack that. 
First of all, what is righteousness? God counts Abraham as righteous. What is righteousness? Well, in the Old Testament, righteousness is a state of perfectly keeping God's law, living a life that's totally pleasing to him. If you were righteous, God looked down at you and said, you are totally right in my eyes. I completely accept you as worthy, as pleasing to me. God, God's love was on you. If you wanted to be in God's favor, you needed to be righteous. That was a good thing. But notice a couple interesting things about this passage. The righteousness that Abraham gets is free. Notice that it says God counts, when Abraham believes, God counts that as righteousness. That means that when Abraham simply believes, God looks down at him and says, Abraham, I now see you as righteous in my eyes. Now, this is not because Abraham's faith was somehow so great, so virtuous that God said, I'm going to look over all your flaws and I just look at your faith and your faith is so great that I now see you as righteous. It's not that his faith was righteousness. After all, we know that Abraham in and of himself was not righteous. Right in the middle of our story, he's fearing, he's doubting, he's coming up with bad ideas in response to what he thinks God is not doing. Just a couple of pages later, he's going to make more goofy mistakes. Abraham is not righteous in and of himself, but somehow, when he believes God, God looks down at him and says, I consider you righteous anyway. This is a free righteousness. This is a righteousness that's given to Abraham. But second, think of how powerful having righteousness in God's eyes would be in response to fear. Think of it. You're perfect in God's eyes. Totally pleasing. It's It's as if you've done nothing wrong in God's eyes ever. So with fear, when you fear, with righteousness, you can say, I know the problems I'm facing are not because God is punishing me for my sins. Why? He's already forgiven me since he freely considers me righteous. When you fear, with God's righteousness, you can say, I know my problems are not because God doesn't love me because when he looks at me, he sees me as perfectly righteous. Even though I know I'm not perfect in and of myself, God sees me as righteous anyway. He's counted me righteous. And with this righteousness, you don't need to fear God's judgment anymore. Why? Even though that was the greatest thing to fear, that's ultimately why righteousness is such a great gift because God says, you're not under my judgment anymore. You're righteous in my sight. So we're left with a bit of a puzzle. Abraham, we know, is not perfect. None of us are perfect. So how is it that by simply believing in God, God gives us this gift of righteousness, this powerful gift Well, the way that we find out is, like Abraham, you could say that we have to look at the stars. The stars point us to how God can possibly do this. Because as we keep reading in the story of Genesis, the story of Abraham's life and his descendants, and into the New Testament, we realize that, yes, God really did pull through for Abraham. He really did have a son of his own, Isaac. And after Isaac, other sons and daughters and he really did seem to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. It seems like God promises, God's promises all did come true for him. And yet, when we get to the New Testament, they don't focus on Isaac, who was Abraham's firstborn promised son. They focus on another descendant of Abraham. And this is perhaps the most amazing thing about this story. See, it, it was the God who was speaking to Abraham in our story who eventually became Abraham's son. The God speaking to Abraham became God's, uh, Abraham's promised son. Now what do I mean? Hundreds of years later, after Abraham's promise, after Abraham's faith, 
God himself came into the world, was born as one of us, and he was born, we're told, as a son of Abraham. This is Jesus Christ, a son of Abraham. And in order to give us this free gift of righteousness, perfect standing in God's eyes, Jesus lived the life that none of us could possibly live, but which we should live. He embodied God's righteousness perfectly so that when he eventually went to the cross, what happened? God looked at him and counted him as though he had our imperfect record, full of sin, doubts, fears, so that God could look at us and count us as if we had Jesus' perfect record. All of his courage, his bravery, his love, his devotion. That's where the great exchange happened. Jesus got our imperfect record so that he could give us his perfect record, so that God could look down on us, imperfect and full of fear as we are, and say, I count you as righteous anyway. When God looks at you, if you have faith, it's as though he's looking at you through the lens of Jesus, and he sees you like he sees his very own son, perfect and righteous in his eyes. And you know, if Abraham could believe, we can believe too, why? When, what led Abraham to believe? Looking up at the stars, seeing God's power, we have far better reason to believe than Abraham did. You know why? Because we have the thing that the stars pointed to. The stars pointed to Abraham's descendants, right? The greatest of whom was Jesus Christ. Abraham believed because he saw the glory of stars. Surely we can believe because we see the glory of Jesus Christ, Abraham's ultimate descendant. If we have a great God like this, a God who leaves heaven, you could say a God who leaves the stars to come down to save us, a God who goes the ultimate infinite distance to take away your fears, we don't need to be worried, do we? If you have a God who's this loving, a God who places his own righteousness on you, then there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. If you're totally loved and accepted by the God of the universe, why in the world would you fear? You can face anything. We'll conclude with a brief thought. You know, Abraham's faith was literally world-changing. His faith changed the course of civilization. All three of the major faiths of the world derive from Abraham. Did you realize that? They all call Abraham father. Abraham's faith led to entire civilizations. One man's faith. And you could also say that his faith led to you if you're a Christian. Right? Um, when he looked up at the stars that night, you could say that he was looking up at you by faith. The Bible says that everybody who believes is part of Abraham's family of faith. So let me ask you this. What would start happening if you started to believe God? If one ancient man's faith, centuries ago, led to so much, what might happen if you believed God? Maybe for the first time. What would happen if you believed God the way he deserves to be believed? What might happen to your fears? Why don't we pray? Our Father, we thank you that even though the story is brief, it's full of help for us. Father, make these words, words that interrupt our fears like they interrupted Abraham's fears and worries and lead us to faith in you. God, such a loving God you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.